Well, good morning. Uh, I am a stand-in for one uh, more story here, and that is Dr. MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur is not able to be here. I don't know if I was supposed to say that. It's just that I, a couple months ago, I was asked to come down to the seminary, and I stood in for uh, Bob Vernon, police chief. And a couple weeks ago, I was asked to come down, and I stood in for Dr. Stead. And this morning, I'm standing in for Dr. MacArthur. I guess that means that I'm, you know, I'm never going to be asked to do anything on my own, but if you... <laughs> If you think in terms of who I'm substituting for, I'm certainly moving up in the world. So I guess that's that's a good thing. Well, I would like uh, actually, uh, Mr. Maddox uh, has um, denominated these, I guess, a couple of weeks. Uh, we want to focus on a theme, and I was given this theme, and, I, and I'm I'm glad to address it. And the theme is the Word of God in a hostile world, or as we say in Illinois, a hostile world. But uh, the Word of God in a hostile world. And uh, uh, what I would like to do this morning in introducing that theme, and that's going to be sort of the focus here for a, for a short while, is to introduce you, and this is going to be a little bit uh, uh, heavy perhaps, but I would like to introduce you, take you on a bit of an odyssey through the Old Testament, and introduce you to a family you may not have encountered in the past. That family is the Rechabites. I want to introduce you to Jehonadab ben Rechab, or the, the Rechabites, the family of the Rechabites. And, and I, I, I think the Rechabites will function for us as a paradigm or a, a model of how best to communicate the Word of God to what is indeed a perverse and wicked generation. We are called upon in the Scriptures in the New Testament by Paul to be lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And uh, Jesus called upon us to be uh, lights and salt in this world. And that's not an easy responsibility, but it is one which is certainly incumbent upon us. And I would like you to introduce... I'm going to try and just uh, walk you through three Old Testament passages, introduce you to these Rechabites, and then make, uh, we hope, some application on the basis of them. Uh, the three passages... I'm going to ask three simple questions and then try and make application. First of all, I want us to ask the question, where did the Rechabites come from? Now, let me say, first of all, you need to, let's just look, and I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and go, first of all, to, to uh, 2 Kings chapter 10. Now, I'm going to presume a certain measure of Old Testament knowledge, but even those among you who are freshmen have walked through this period of Old Testament uh, rather recently, and uh, we, we, we should have some handle on this. So 2 Kings chapter 10 and then I want you to take your, uh, kind of put a marker there of one sort or another and go to Jeremiah 35. So we're going to be in 2 Kings 10 and then Jeremiah 35. And then finally, 1 Chronicles 2. So those three passages, 2 Kings chapter 10, and then Jeremiah 35, and then uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Those three passages are, are the only three passages in the Old Testament where the Rechabites are mentioned. Now, I might say, just in case you go check up on that, there is another name, man named Rechab who is mentioned elsewhere, but he has no connection with the, uh, with the Rechabites. So if you'll start in 1 Kings chapter 10, this is the first time the Rechabites are mentioned. I'm going to tell you the story real quickly. Do you remember Jehu, the hot rodder? Jehu, the man who rideth his chariot furiously. Jehu was commissioned by God to uh, wipe out the house of Ahab. 
Now remember, in the northern kingdom, there was a king, a very wicked king by the name of Ahab. He married a Canaanite princess whose name stands for all that is wicked in the feminine world. He married Jezebel. Jezebel was a confirmed Baalite. She made it her business to introduce Baalism into the northern kingdom as the official religion. Jezebel and, and her husband Ahab, uh, who, by the way, almost wiped out Yahweh worship in Israel. Uh, you remember that uh, Jehu, I'm sorry, that uh, Jezebel and Ahab were resisted by the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And after Elijah had first confronted Ahab after the drought and went and fled because of fear of Jezebel, uh, you remember God came to him and, 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 and Elijah kind of whined and he said, God, I and I alone have, have remained loyal to Yahweh and all of Israel. And God said, no, no, that's not true. There are how many? 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, 7,000 is a pretty good number if, you, if you're pastoring a church of, uh, of 7,000. But if there are only 7,000 in Israel and Judah who have not bowed the knee to Baal, Yahwism is in deep trouble. Yahwism, was in, that is the worship and acknowledgement of Yahweh as the God of Judah, was in jeopardy of being abandoned in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And God raised up this mighty uh, Elijah and Elisha, of course, to, to resist it and turn the tide and revive Yahwism, if you don't mind the worship and, and honor of Yahweh once again. But my point is that uh, Jehu, I'm sorry, Jezebel and Ahab, uh, by reason of their commitment to Baalism, represented a, a tremendous threat to the worship of Yahweh. And then they had a, a daughter by the name of Athaliah. And maybe you remember that Athaliah was unwisely married off, that is, uh, a king in the south, a godly king, uh, Jehoshaphat, allowed his son to marry the Israelite princess Athaliah, and she brought Baal worship into the southern kingdom. So the point is that through the efforts of Jezebel in the north and the, Ezebe the efforts of Athaliah in the south, uh, Baalism virtually became, almost became the state religion of both Israel and Judah, were it not for the, uh, the, inter the, the uh, ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Now, the point is this, that God raised up a king in the north and commissioned him. He was a godless king, but he obeyed God at this level. God commissioned him to destroy the house of Ahab. And Jehu was promised that if he would destroy the house of Ahab, the house that had introduced Baalism into the kingdom, that God would reward him with four generations of his dynasty. And he did that. Now, first, 2 Kings 10, the passage before you, beginning at verse 15, is the account of Jehu going up to Jezreel to destroy the house of Ahab. Actually, he did it with some zeal. He has just killed 42 uh, relatives of the southern king. The southern kingdom had made alliance with the northern king. So he was really on a rampage. Jehu was out doing, as it were, the work of the Lord, slaughtering the worshipers of Baal. And as he is going up to, the, to, to Jezreel in chapter 10 and verse 15... And by the way, it says, verse 15, when he had departed from there. From there is, is Beit Akkad, where he had slaughtered 42 uh, uh, princes, uh, members of the family of the, of the king of, of the southern kingdom. But it says, when he departed from there, now here he is, he met Jehonadab ben Rechab, that is, Jehonadab the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? Now, I'm going to be frank with you, the... Uh, the, the, the grammar here is a little tough, and sometimes it's hard to know for sure uh, you know, what the pronouns refer to. And so it's hard to know for sure whether 
Jehu said is to, to, to Jehadadab, is your heart right with my, as mine is? Or whether Jehadadab said to Jehu, is your heart right? But either way, there is a scent, and they agree. Uh, it says Jehadadab answered, it is. Now, again, it's a little more confusing than that in the original, but it says Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. He gave him his hand and took him up into the chariot. So Jehu takes Jehadadab up into the chariot, and he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. He made him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria. And then Jehu and Jehadadab, now this is just, the reason I go through this story is this is the first time we meet this man Jehadadab, and he's going to become very important to what I'm trying to say to you. And what I want you to see is, at a time, when as I mentioned to you before, there were only 7,000 who had not bowed their knees to Baal, one of them was Jehanadab. And Jehanadab happily and zealously joined Jehu in the slaughter of the Ahab, uh, I'm sorry, the Ahab house and the, and the Baalite priest. And notice what they do is they get everybody together in a room. And look at verse 23. Uh, I'm still in 2 Kings 5, uh, 10. Jehu went to the house of Baal with Jehanadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshiper of Baal, Search and see that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshippers of Baal. There seems to have been some subterfuge here. He got them together as if he was going to, uh, I don't know, consult with them or something. And then in the middle of that cons consultation, he said, Now let's just make sure we don't have any spies here. Make sure there are no servants of Yahweh here. And they look and find out. And then verse 4, They went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Jehu had stationed himself for himself 80 men outside. He said, The one who permits any of the men who I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life, and they slaughtered the priests of Baal. Now, Jehonadab, or otherwise known in the Scriptures as Jehonadab, is very much a part of that record. Now, now at that point, the Rechabites disappear from the record until Jeremiah 35. Take your Bible and go to Jeremiah 35, if you will. Jeremiah 35, we once, in, once again encounter, now we encounter actually the descendants of Jehonadab. Now, are you with me? This is a little heavy. We've got to shift gears. We've been back there in the divided monarchy. We were back there when Jehu was slaughtering the, the, uh, the Baalite priests and so on, the house of Ahab. Now we've moved ahead past the time when the northern kingdom was carried off. We've moved ahead to the days of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is living at the end of the southern kingdom. Uh, you will perhaps recall, and if you're in my Old Testament survey class, why a pox on you and your generations if you don't recall, but uh, you will perhaps, because we've been going through this, you will perhaps remember that there were three times when the uh, southern kingdom was, was besieged or was set upon by Babylon. First of all, in 606, Nebuchadnezzar came just having won the battle at Carchemish and established hegemony over the Mediterranean world. He came... And, uh, and, and had to, to run off to establish his throne, and he took Daniel with him back to Babylon. Then, because the king refused to pay the tribute, the king of Judah refused to pay the tribute, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came again and laid siege to the city to punish it. That was in 597. Now, I've got to tell you something. Before Nebuchadnezzar came to lay siege to the city, he sent small armies to trouble the, the, the citizens of Judah. During that time, when there were emissaries from Nebuchadnezzar, who were troubling the cities of Judah, trying to bring them into line. You see, because the king, Jehoiakim, had withheld the tribute money. He had refused to pay off the big payment that they had to pay every year to keep their the foreign power, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, from coming to destroy them. So, so, so Judah was in rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. 
And if, if, if it was necessary, Nebuchadnezzar was going to bring his army and punish him. But he tried to do something about it before that happened. He sent these small emissary armies to sort of trouble the cities and bring them into line and try and get them to, to send the tribute. While that was happening, there was a family called the Rechabites who took temporary refuge in the city, the walled city of Jerusalem. That's the scene for Jeremiah 35. Jeremiah 35 is the account of a time when the Rechabites, who are the descendants of Jehonadab, have, have, have left their, their dwellings outside the city and have taken temporary refuge. Jeremiah, by the way, and let me just say, you want to talk about the Word of God in a hostile world. Jeremiah lived in a day when Judah was hostile to the Word of the Lord. Judah, the nation of Judah, had committed itself to disobedience. God had displayed Himself again and again but they were, remember Jeremiah says to, to Judah at this time, as are your cities, so are your gods. Jeremiah 5. And the point is that every little village has its own pagan god and its own, in Judah, in Judah, in the shadow of the temple. That's how wicked Judah had become at this period. So, so this nation, this, this covenant nation, this nation which had been so specially chosen and, and, and protected by God, had rebelled against him so much so that they are about to be carried off by Babylon. But before that actually happens, you have Jeremiah warning them and crying out and, and, and begging them to repent. And he uses a marvelous object lesson. I want you to pick it up in Jeremiah 35 and verse 1. This is kind of a long passage. I'll hurry. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites. There they are. Speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord and into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. This is going to become important. So he brings them in and he offers them wine, but they refuse that wine. Uh, verse 5, I set before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wines and cups. And I said, Drink wine. They said, We will not drink wine. Why will you not? For Jonadab, the son of Rahab, our father, commanded us, saying... Now, Jehonadab is that guy we met way back there, uh, you know, several hundred years earlier in the days of Ahab. So, uh, they evidently, there had been some family restriction mandated way back there in the days of Jehonadab. We're going to talk about that. And these people are being loyal to it. They were not going to drink wine. And uh, because our father... Uh, Jehonadab, the son of, our, uh, of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine. No, you are your sons forever. And notice there are some other. There are three restrictions here. You're not to drink wine. These are the Rechabites. See where I'm taking you is the Rechabites were a family who, for some reason, we'll discuss that in just a moment, remained loyal to an unusual code. And that code was threefold. Number one, they were not to drink wine. Number two, verse seven, they were not to build a house. You shall not build a house. Now, they were nomadic. They lived in tents long after Israel had ceased to be nomadic, long after they had begun to build cities and become sedentary. The Rechabites remained nomadic. And then he says, You shall not sow seed nor plant a vineyard of your own. So they were to do no, no agriculture. So here you have a people who had... It's a sort of a strange code, isn't it? Sort of an unusual code, uh, an unusual way of living. You cannot drink any wine. You cannot live in any cities. You must live in, the, in, the, in a tent. And you cannot... Uh, sow any seed or grow any vineyards. And they say, now the point is, the Rechabites at this time, having been deliberately tempted by Jeremiah, they say, we're not going to do that. And the reason is because the Father gave them that, uh, look at verse 10, we have only dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that John and Dab our Father commanded us. And, and, and so it says, verse 11, the only reason, and they may have felt a little guilty about being in a walled city, so they say in verse 11, 
they kind of make excuses. It came about when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, these little armies that I told you about, that uh, we said, come and let us go to Jerusalem before the army of the Chaldeans and before the army of the Syrians. And so that's why we're dwelling in Jerusalem now. But we don't dwell in cities. We don't drink wine. We don't ever involve ourselves in agriculture because our father told us not to. So uh, Jeremiah goes on and he makes a point of this. Now I've got to hurry, so let me, I'll come back to Jeremiah 35. But so what I want you to catch is, well, in the first place, we have 2 Kings 10, which introduces Jehonadab. We have Jeremiah 35, which tells us a story about a time when the Rechabites were used. See, what's going to happen? I should tell you, what's going to happen here is Jeremiah is going to say, Hey, you people of Judah, God gave you commands. You wouldn't listen to them. These guys, the Rechabites, were given a, a command by their just their earthly father, and they've been loyal to that. If they can live up to, to what their earthly father demanded, why can't you live up to what your heavenly father demands of you? That's the whole point of Jeremiah 35. And then he commends the Rechabites and makes them a very startling promise because of their, loyalness, of their loyalty to their father's commission, their, 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 their earthly father's commission. So in Jeremiah 35, we encounter the Rechabites once again, and it's sort of a, we get some interesting uh, insights into their lifestyle and so on. Now the other passage, I'm not going to take it to you, is 1 Chronicles 2, where they just show up in those terribly intriguing genealogies of 1 Chronicles 1 to 9. But uh, it really is a point to be made out of that. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 2, they show up in the genealogies there in the long section. Gen now, let's ask three questions. I'm going to be very, very quick. Number one, <laughs> number one, where I want to answer the question very simply, where do the Rechabites come from? Uh, and in order to answer that, we've got to go to uh, back to uh, uh, first for, uh, to, to Second Kings. If you go back to well, no, we don't either. No, go to First Chronicles. There's a point I want to make here, and it's it's important to what I what I have to tell you, but it's it's a little uh, you know it's a little dry and toasty. So forgive me, but First Chronicles two and verse fifty five is that verse that I mentioned before. And there's a very, very interesting point made here that we don't learn in the other passages. We're not told about where these Rechabites came from until 1 Chronicles 2. And it says, and notice it mentions, and by the way, 1 Chronicles is the genealogy listing the people who had returned under, under uh, Ezra, or under Zerubbabel. And it says, the families of scribes who lived at Jabez were the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the Succothites. These are the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father, there he is, of the house of Rechab. So the Rechabites, now this may be you know, a lot more than you want to know, but just take my word for it at this point. Watch now. The Rechabites are Kenites. Now who in the world are the Kenites? Well, all right, I'm glad you asked. Uh, go back to, to Genesis 15. Go back to Genesis 15. I'm going to take you to several verses real quick. Can you handle this? Genesis 15, verse 19 which is, this is God telling Abram about the people who live in the land that he is going to give him. He's going to give him Canaan, but Canaan is already occupied by a number of tribes or a number of peoples, and one of them that's mentioned in verse 19 of Genesis 15 is the Kenites. See him there? The Kenites, then, were a people who lived in Canaan before Abraham arrived. Now, it's interesting, to me anyway, you'll have to decide for yourself, I suppose, but... If you go to Exodus chapter 3, um, this is a pilgrimage, I told you, it's kind of a long odyssey here, but stay with me. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1 mentions the fact that Moses, after he fled from, uh, 
Pharaoh went to Midian and, 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 and took up with a man. He married the daughter of a man named Jethro, who is described in, in, in Exodus 3.1 as, uh, as, as a priest of Midian, a priest in Midian. He's a priest who lives in the area of Midian. All right, and, he, and by the way, he is, he is a Midianite. Jethro is a Midianite. But if you compare that one more time to Judges, go to Judges 1.16. Have I lost you? I'll make a point in just a moment here. I promise. Judges 1 and verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. Now there, Mo, uh, Jethro is identified as a Kenite. By the way, the Kenites are going to show up three more times in very, specific, in very important passages. I'll just, I won't take you to them. You remember when uh, in the days of Deborah and Barak, when Sisera, the captain of the army, fled and was put to death by a woman who drove the tent peg through his temple? Remember that? Uh, while he napped? Uh, uh, she was married to a Kenite. You remember that when when Saul attacked in 1 Samuel 15, was told by God to go and wipe out the city of the Amalekites. That before he wiped out the Amalekites, he sent messengers into the city to the Kenites and saying, "We're going to wipe the city. You Kenites, get out because you are friends of Yahweh." So again and again, the Kenites seem to be, and here I'm going to actually make the point that I'm trying to been trying to all the time. The Midianites, listen, the Midianites, Midian was one of the six sons of Abraham by Keturah. You remember after Sarah died, Moses, re, I'm sorry, Abraham married Keturah and bore sons. One of them was Midian. So they were Semitic. They were of the tribe, uh, they were of the family of Abraham, but they were, they were not of Jacob. They were not Jewish. They hated the Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, the Midianites are the implacable enemies of the Jews, but there seems to have been a family within Midian from whom came Jethro, and that family was called the Kenites. And the Kenites, probably because of the influence of Jethro, so the Kenites are this remarkable, now watch this, non-Jewish strain in the Old Testament who do better in their obedience to Yahweh than Israel does. The Kenites are fascinating in that they, they, they love Yahweh and they remain loyal to Him even when the Jews, the people of the covenant, refuse to. One family, just take my word for it, within the Kenites, in other words, you have the, the, the nation of the Midianites. They hate Yahweh. Then you have the family, the tribe of the Kenites. They have committed themselves to Yahweh, and one family within that tribe of Kenites were the Rechabites. The Rechabites, and this is what I want you to catch. This is all that I'm after in all of this. The Rechabites were non-Jews who lived in Israel. They loved, lived among the Jews, they worshipped Yahweh, but they were non-Jews. Now, that's going to become important in just a moment. That's where they came from then. The Rechabites were, gen were, were, were descendants of Abraham, but they were not part of the covenant community, but they had embraced Yahwism and lived within Israel. Now, let's go to the next step. Who were the Rechabites? Jeremiah 35. Go back to Jeremiah 35. If I've lost you. Come back to me, because I think I can show you something that will be interesting here. So what we're dealing with is a family of of people who uh, who are not Jews but who have taken up their residence within Israel and are devoted to Yahwism. Uh, in Jeremiah 35, as I said to you, they are they are introduced to us as this people. Now watch who have this strange code of conduct. Remember, they will not drink wine. 
They will not live in houses, only in tents, and they will not, uh, they will not participate in agriculture. Now, by the way, the prevailing idea is that the, the Rechabites, and it's all out of 30, Jeremiah 35. The only evidence we have is Jeremiah 35. And the prevailing idea is that the Rechabites were a, were a sort of a puritanical, separatist little group who, uh, almost like what we would think of almost as the Amish, who had decided to stay with their, their ancient ways. And so where the nation had become uh, sedentary and were living in towns, they decided to be nomadic. Where, and, and they stayed away from wine and so on. So they were sort of a separatist sect. And you'll read this a lot. As a matter of fact, usually, and for reasons I won't try and explain, it's kind of technical, but usually they are identified as shepherds, that they were a pastoral nomadic group traveling from place to place, keeping their sheep, staying away from society, sort of, if you don't mind, screaming at the darkness. Sort of a little group, almost like in the New Testament, the Essenes, you know, who separated themselves and just screamed at the darkness. I absolutely reject that. I don't think that's the Rechabites at all, and I have a number of reasons. Are you ready for this? I believe that the Rechabites were a family who had developed a very unusual and important skill. That skill was blacksmithing. They were smiths. I believe they were a guild of artisans, and I think I can prove this to you. They were a guild of artisans who, who earned their living by working with iron. Now, that's fabulously interesting, isn't it? You'll, you'll work with that all day. But I, it's, it's important for what I'm going to say to you. Uh, see, the point is, think about Jeremiah 35, what I already said to you. Uh, there are a number of lines of argument that I could give you, but number one, if these people were some sort of little separatist sect who were looked upon as sort of goofballs by the rest of society, they... Jeremiah, when he appeals to the Rechabites, they seem to be somebody who have rank and power and influence among the people. This is not some sort of little offshoot. That's important. Secondly, listen, folks, if these people were nomadic uh, uh, shepherds who who traveled from place to place, when when the uh, armies of, of Nebuchadnezzar came in and began to trouble the land, why would they go to the city? If they, they know the hills, they know the caves, they know the desert. They can go to the place where armies can never go. In other words, it would have been the easiest thing in the, in the world for them to flee into those places they knew so well where they kept their sheep and so on, the desolate pet places, rather than take refuge. So it just doesn't make any sense to have them taking refuge in the city of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 35 if it's some sort of nomadic uh, pastoral people. Furthermore, to be honest with you, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the restrictions, no wine, no uh, cities, no agriculture. Those restrictions make no sense to nomadic people. But they make all sorts of sense if you understand in the ancient world, as technologies developed, they were often the, the technologies often developed among small groups and for purely selfish financial reasons. In, in other words, because we don't want the uh, craft of ironworking to become well known, so everybody can do it. It was kept to themselves. In other words, a family would develop this, they would carefully teach it from one generation to the other, and they would do everything they could to keep it from anybody else. So it seems like, I believe, and, and the point is, you see, number one, they never, I believe Jehonadab, the Rechabite, Rechab means, by the way, they probably mostly worked with chariots. It seems like uh, what they, their greatest expertise, the word Rechab means rider or charioteer. The word Kenite, by the way, means smith, as in blacksmith. 
So, uh, so the point is, you see, just imagine now, and then I'm, you've got this small family of people. They number one, they'll drink no wine. You know why? Because loose lips tell tales, and they will not allow. They they took an oath of silence about this special knowledge they had about blacksmithing. Number two, and by the way, there are all sorts of parallels parallels to this in the ancient world, precisely like this. Number two, they didn't live in cities. The reason is because they were going to give themselves to this this very very and, and what was in that day the most advanced. This was the you know, this was the nuclear science or whatever of the day. The most advanced technology of the day, as Israel is just coming into the Iron Age, is 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 iron working. And you see, in order to work with iron, you have to have ore, you have to have fuel, uh, you have to have customers. And so they lived in tents, so they go from place to place and ply their trade. And finally, no agriculture, just because that takes a lot of time, and everybody had to give himself to learning this trade and perpetuating this trade, so they would they would barter and trade with others for. Uh, for food, so what in the world? The point is simply that I believe these people were were a uh, uh, guild of of artisans who were especially skilled in an area that was terribly important to the day. They probably traveled from day, place to place. By the way, every time in the Bible the Rechabites show up or the Kenites, they're close to a major city. Even though they didn't live in the cities, they wanted to be close to the city because those were the customers. They came into the city or they came near the city and, and, and worked their trade. So I believe the Rechabites were an artisan guild, an art, a guild of artisans who were very, very good at blacksmithing, probably. And, and Jehonadab, and this is the point to be made in all of this, Jehonadab's code that he set down, no wine, no agriculture, no houses, had nothing to do with your spiritual life. It had nothing to do, there was no spiritual dimension to it. It was simply a matter of now, they seem to have been spiritual people, but that's not the point of the code. The, the code was perpetuating for perpetuating the monopoly on, on ironworking. Well, finally, so what? where'd they come from? They were non-Jews, Midianites, a family called the Kenites, and a family within that called the Rechabites who had lived in Israel. What were they? They were probably blacksmiths who kept very, very careful, uh, had very careful restrictions in order to perpetuate the trade. And finally, uh, what became of them? Well, I want you to go to First Chronicles. Oh, go first of all. To Jeremiah 35. Now, I've got to hurry. I'm going to be done in just a minute. Jeremiah 35 and verse 19. And I, I haven't read all of it for, for you, folks, so forgive me for that. But what happens is, again, I already I did read part of it. Jeremiah, while the, the, the well, Jeremiah called these Rechabites in and he said, taste of the wine. They said, no, we won't do it. And then Jeremiah turned. Maybe I should read to you verse 13. Jeremiah turned to the people and he says in verse 13, and this is building on the Rechabite experience, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words, declares Yahweh? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are observed, so they don't drink wine to this day. They have obeyed their father's command, but I've spoken to you again and again, and you haven't listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, literally in the Hebrew, rising up early. In other words, getting about it every day early, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to worship them, and you'll dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have observed the command of their father, but this people won't listen to me. See the point? Jehonadab, the Rechabites, become a, a negative illustration of the, the wickedness of Israel. And then he says in verse uh, 17, 
I'm sorry, verse 18. Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father, and you have kept all his commands and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. God makes a promise to the Rechabites. I'm not going to get into it. I have uh, There are about 12 different ideas as to what this means. But go over to First Chronicles 2, and with this, uh, I'll make... What happened to the... I believe that God made a remarkable promise to the Rechabites, and that promise is fulfilled in First Chronicles 2. There's a lot of question about exactly what it means. You shall not have a, fail a man to stand before me always. And because that's sometimes used with priestly overtones, you know, the priest stands before God. Some people think that somehow the Rechabites were insinuated into the priestly office, but I, there's no evidence to that end. What you have in First Chronicles 2 is a record of the Jews who returned from captivity in Babylon. And as I said before, you have three families of scribes who are given to us there, and they are the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rahab, Folks, the point seems to be that God adopted the Rechabites into the covenant community. The Rechabites actually have standing as Jews in the genealogical lists. They are accepted into the covenant community. They are not sons of Abraham. The promise, the marvelous covenant promises that were given to Abraham were given to him and his seed. Now, to be sure... These are Midianites, they are of the seed of Abraham, but they are not of the covenant seed, and yet God adopts them in. And it seems that uh, by the time they return from captivity, the Rechabites actually have been, as it were, given status in the covenant community. Why? Because they had proven themselves uh, faithful to the commission that had given them. Now, there is also a spiritual dimension. Now, I want to make some very simple points, and as I say, maybe this is not the most scintillating stuff you've ever heard, but... The Rechabites, they do give you a sort of an interesting insight into a very pious substratum of Israel during a time or during a, during a course of time when Israel had given itself to wickedness. In other words, I think the Rechabites can function for us as a sort of a paradigm or a model as to how we can take the Word of God to a hostile world. And there are three things. And if I've, if I've, I've backgrounded this thing all to death, but there are three lessons that I want you to learn from the Rechabites. And I really think that they are, they are important lessons, and, and I'm just going to school on these Rechabites. Why was it, folks, when the whole nation of Judah had given itself to wickedness, the Rechabites remained a, a voice and a, and a testimony for God? Why was that? Well, there are three things, it seems to me, to learn from. Number one... The Rechabites recognized that the world was a threat to them. You think about all that we've said this morning. Now, there, there is a spiritual dimension to this. There is just a, if you don't mind, a, a professional dimension to it. They recognized that the world was a threat professionally in that they, if they shared their secrets, if, they, if their lips were loose, if they, if they stayed too long in one place and made too deep a relationship, they might share those secrets and all of a sudden their professional monopoly would be lost. But the world, and so, and so as, as a group, they remained distinct from the world very carefully because, folks, they, world, they realized that the world was a threat to them. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It is the deep disappointment of my heart that so many who name the name of Christ today 
seem to have no inkling, no idea whatever, that there is a world which is hostile to Christianity. As a matter of fact, I do not understand why the Christian feels so compelled to walk as close to the world as he possibly, possibly can. That's a strange thing to me. And the fact is, you you know, the Bible is absolutely replete, and I realize there's some... It is a very difficult thing sometimes to distinguish what is of the world. You know, John tells us, defines that which is about the world, which is a threat to us. He says it is, you cannot love the things of the world and the things of God. And he defines that which is in the world as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the heart and the pride of life. And the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And, and, and those things are, are rather nebulous categories. But will we not take it and, and, and if we are going to function as a, as a, an effective voice, uh, taking the Word of God to a hostile world, we have got to understand, folks, that the world is indeed a threat to us. It is a threat to our gospel. It is a threat to, to our spiritual life. And we need to be on our guard. I, uh, the old, in the Old Testament, God, in raising up Israel to be a priestly nation, you shall be a kingdom with a priestly capacity. Remember that, Exodus 19.6, the golden text of the Old Testament? And in Exodus 19, when he says, you shall be a king, what he meant was, I want to put myself on display through Israel. And in order to do that, you know what he did, folks? He made Israel different. There, there are all these restrictions in, in the law. They, they were uh, on, 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 on this, you know, all of these, for instance, Sabbath restrictions, all of these dietary restrictions. And, you know, I've said this to, to, to some of you, but... There, there was a book written some years ago, maybe some of you remember it, called, the, um, called uh, None of These Diseases. And in that book, a, written by a medical doctor, his contention was that if we would go back and more or less live out the, the, the law of the Old Testament, we wouldn't have any diseases because, because the law, the dietary law and the sabbatic law and all this sort of thing was designed to keep people healthy. And he goes through all these things and shows how this or that specific... Uh, item of the law, if understood in a medical setting, will help you be healthier. Well, folks, I'm going to tell you something. There may have been this or that health-giving benefit to this or that item of the law, but the dietary law and the Sabbath-keeping law was not made. To, it was. It was. It wasn't given to make you healthy. It was given to make you different. Uh, Herman Woke in his in his book, This Is My God, makes this point dramatically as he tries to describe Judaism. Herman Woke is, uh, is an author and a playwright. He, he spent much of his life, he's not a believer, he spent much of his life, he's a very orthodox practicing Jew, he spent much of his life in the entertainment industry, and he makes the point that you cannot live out a day as a practicing Jew, but what everybody's going to know it. Because every time you sit down to eat in the course of a day, you're probably going to eat with people. And as you sit down to eat, there are all sorts of places you can't go. There are all sorts of things you can't eat. So you have to sort of emblazon it on the world. I am Jewish. That's why God made the most basic part of their lives different, you see. Every Sabbath, you couldn't travel over so, you know, such and such a distance. And, and the whole point was God wanted Israel to be different. God wants you and me to be different. Now, I realize, I don't think that means wear a uniform. I don't think it lives in, in cloisters. As a matter of fact, let me go to my second point. I've got to shut up. Uh, so I'm saying the first thing is, I think the Rechabites were affected because they knew the world was hostile to them. But the second thing, and this balances it out, it's very, very important, is the second lesson to be learned is, though they knew the world was a threat to them, they did not abandon the world. They committed themselves to maintaining their purity in the midst of the world. 
Now, I happen to come from, from spiritual circles where the mentality is more, you know, circle the wagon, boys. It's them against us. And, uh, uh, and, and, and we, we, we isolate ourselves in every conceivable way from the world. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's what the Bible enjoins us to do. The Rechabites are an interesting illustration, an interesting instruction, in that they lived among the world. They, they, it was necessary for them in order to maintain their trade. But listen, in order also to maintain their testimony. We can't leave the world, but we have to realize that that world is a, is a hostile world that is a threat to us in every way. Sometimes balancing that is the single most difficult issue in the Christian's ethical life. Trying to balance what does it mean to be, to, to not, I don't want to be, as Paul said, I don't want to go out of the world, but I want to be of the world. How do I balance that? Well, I certainly have no easy answer for that, but I will say that I think you've got to live constantly with those two realities in mind. The world is hostile to me. I am called to be a light in the midst of a perverse and, 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 uh, a uh, wicked generation, but I cannot allow the perversity, the wickedness of that generation to corrupt me. I must be a light to that generation, and I cannot be if I allow them to corrupt me. And then one other thing, real quickly. What made the Rechabites effective? The third thing is simply this, that there was clearly, and this animates everything about the, uh, the, the narrative of Jeremiah 35, there was in the Rechabites an ongoing commitment to the standards of their fathers. I'm going to tell you something, and this this is this is uh, this is a little insight into your head that uh, uh, you can trust me for. Every generation of young people is absolutely convinced that they are the first generation to really think things through. You're convinced that I never challenged anything I was told, that I just went right through school swallowing everything I ever heard, and your responsibility is to be the first one. And I, you know, I, I commend that. I think that's that's the stuff of uh, growing up and coming, going through what uh, uh, what I like to call, you'll forgive me, spiritual uh, puberty. You know, where you sort of have to you grow up. That's why I call it. It's the idea where you're you're actually going to abandon. You're, you're gonna you, maybe you've been raised up and things have been spoon fed to you and you've accepted them that way. Now you're going to think for yourselves. You're going to you're going to question what you've been told. You're going to challenge the values they've been given. That's, that's a necessary thing, and I'm glad for it. And I think this is a happy environment to go through it. But let me tell you something. The standards that are being handed down to you make a lot more sense than you're giving credit for. Almost across the board, I'll tell you that. I don't care where you are in your spiritual development. I'll almost promise you, you have a tremendous skepticism about the standards that have been handed to you, and you need to give them a lot more careful thought than you are. Because there is a reason why Christians who, are, who have lived out their lives before you, generations gone before you, there are reasons why they have come to the sort of standards they have. I'm not saying every single standard is by definition uh, worthy and virtuous and ought to be perpetuated. There are some things where people have gone way beyond what the Scripture says and so on. But... Uh, I, I, I think the Rechabites are, are terribly instructive. If you don't mind, I hope I'm not going too far beyond what the text suggests. But the Rechabites are instructed in, uh, instructive in that they are committed to what was handed down to them from their fathers. And I would exhort you to give credence to that which those who have gone before you. And I'm part of that. I, I you know, it's hardly anyway. You know, I just I realize, uh, you know, I'm I'm moving on and I'm, you know, getting older and older all the time. And there are no happy alternatives to that. So I'm happy to do that. But uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, I just think that you know maybe I've, maybe it's the it's the it's 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 uh, you know I'm 
too ensconced in this generation to have any credibility in telling you that is what I'm saying. But if the if the lesson of the Rechabites is anything, or if there is a lesson there, it seems to me that that's it. So let's be done. We are called to be uh, to take the word of God to a hostile world. I hope the Rechabites are some help to you. I think they're given to us for just this purpose. Again, I rehearse them. Number one, understand the world is a threat to you. It's a desperate threat. Understand that you cannot abandon the world, but you must be lights in the midst of that wicked and perverse generation. And understand that in order to do so, you are well advised to honor the standards and the convictions passed down to you from your forefathers. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the stewardship which is ours. And Father, we realize that uh, we we are no more able to fulfill that stewardship than we are to, to, to become Christians in the first place. We are no less dependent upon you to, in service than we, than we are in salvation. So, Father, we, we cast ourselves before you, and we'd ask that you might enable us to, be the word of God, to, to, to take the Word of God effectively to a hostile world. Father, there are perhaps those here who are not interested in that. They are happy to be absorbed into that hostile world. Might you work mightily with your Spirit and convict those. But then, Father, to the degree that we are committed and anxious to be effective testimonies for you in a world which is indeed hostile to the truth, Father, might you enable us and equip us to that end. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. We're done. Thank you.